0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 12 with me this morning. Luke chapter 12. Ever since Jesus was raised back to life from the dead and ascended back to the glory of God in heaven, his disciples have been wondering when will he fulfill his promise and return to the earth? In fact, this is not just the great theological hope that's talked about in the pages of the New Testament, but it should be the great motivating, the great encouraging hope of all mature believers. Like John the Apostle, we should be praying regularly, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It should be our greatest hope and desire for Christ to return. But how will He come? When will He come? What should we do in the meantime? These are the kinds of questions that Christians have been seeking answers to for quite a while. And some people have provided better answers than others. So we've allowed those questions to drive them to disengage from the world, to pull back from anything cultural and essentially sit up on a hilltop. Uh, simply waiting for Christ to return. Others have become very detailed and uh, supposedly decoding verses and newspapers and making predictions about when Jesus will come back. And th- there's lots of other things that people have done as well. The question is, what should we do today? What, what should we do? How should we think about Jesus' return and how shall we wait for it? And what we should do rather than looking to any uh, particular author, we should let Jesus himself tell us what we should be doing. And that's what we're going to do when we look at Luke chapter 12. We've uh, taken a break from our series through Luke's gospel as Uh, I was out of town and and the other pastors were preaching through uh, the letter to the Hebrews. And then we celebrated Good Friday, Jesus atoning death for sinners, whereby we have salvation in him. And we also celebrated Resurrection Sunday about the glorious fact that Jesus did not simply die for sinners. He was also raised back to life for sinners. And so now we return to our series in Luke's Gospel and we pick up where we left off in Luke chapter 12. You'll remember if you've been with us that this is in the middle of Jesus teaching his disciples. He had had resistance. People had stood and opposed him because of what he was teaching. And so in the midst of both people clamoring for uh, to be around him, to be near him, for healings or whatever, and to opposition against him, he gathers his apostles and the larger group of disciples together and he says, this is what life is meant to be like as my disciples. And we pick up in the middle of that... At verse 35 and here we see jesus say this stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But what if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive only a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they trusted much they will demand the more. May God bless the ring of his word. As we think back over the last 40 or 50 years especially, there have been certain evangelical leaders who have made their entire ministry. They have built all that they have done and said around the return of Christ. And every few years, or sometimes even every few months, they, they seem to find something in the, the news stories, the events of the day, that, that uh, they combine with verses of Scripture to say, look, get ready, Jesus' return is just right around the corner. It's so close. And they've been saying that message for decades. Now, very few people actually predict a date for his return, though they come close to it. In fact... Uh, there was one guy that came really close to it. When I was in college, we had a a new pastor, and he had certain obligations that he had already lined up. So he was gone uh, for a few weeks here and there in the first year, and he had different people coming and and speaking. And some of them, uh, I later asked him, and he said he'd never actually heard before. He only knew by reputation of other pastors. And I filed that away, um, as you'll see in a minute, not ever to do that again. Uh, because when this one individual came, he was talking about um, the, the, the end times, about Jesus' return, and he literally said this, Jesus said we cannot know the day or the hour, but he never said the month or the year. And, 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 and frankly, though, what somebody meant for evil, God meant for good, because at that very moment, I knew that we were only dating at the time that Melinda was the woman for me, because she was just as, if not more incredulous than I was, a Bible student, that he had said that. And I just thought, what a woman. She's, she's for me, right? I mean, um, a, a woman can learn to cook, but to, to love God's Word like that, 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 that could be hard to come by. So uh, she was just like, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he said that. What do you think? I can't believe he said that. I was like, I know, I know, I know. Isn't it great that you caught it so... Notice what Jesus says here. Jesus says that, that waiting is not about charts and graphs and predictions. He says we, we are to be ready for his return at any moment. Not, not trying to plot out timelines and look for signs in the sky. And that readiness, that being ready is most clearly seen in our ministry for Christ. In our service to him. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this passage and what he wants to teach us this morning. What we need to understand is that the way that we live and serve on a daily basis should show that we are ready and waiting for our master's return. And that's what we want to think about even as we begin unpacking this passage. Number one, we want to think about the master's promised return. The master's promised return return When you think about the reality of jesus coming again what will his return be like well first we see that he will return at an unexpected time that he will return at an unexpected time jesus uses several analogies and examples in this passage to drive this point home one of them is this picture of the master returning to his home in verse 38 he says if he comes the second watch the third watch and finds his servants awake blessed are those servants Now, unless you've been in the military, like some of you have, or especially, I imagine, the the Navy, uh, where you have specific watches, we don't think about watches of the night, right? We think about bedtime and wake up, and often despise the alarm that rouses us from sleep. But both the Jews and the Romans actually divided up the evening into uh, groupings of hours that they called watches, and part of that was because this was a pre electric society you know that they, they didn 't flip on a switch when they came home at night. Um, it did, didn 't work that way, right? If you wanted light, you had to uh, you had to provide it for yourself by some means. So for the most part, when it got dark, people went to bed. P- people went to sleep. they were not out carousing around. One of the things that was I think uh, most surprising to me, we saw it last year, but again, it was just amazing. Uh, Our trip in the Philippines is that, um, you know, I think Chicago or New York City, someone can correct me later, somewhere it's called the sea that never sleeps. They got nothing on Manila. I mean, it was four o'clock in the morning and there was probably 150 people coming in and out of this gas station in the course of 50. I couldn't believe it. I thought, what are you guys doing awake at this hour? Go to bed. I want to be in bed. Uh, and, and even here you get up at six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and go to coffee shop to work on a sermon. I know you guys do that all the time. Um, uh, there's nobody on the road. The lights aren't even on. They're just blinking yellow. Uh, and, uh, but Jesus in his day, it was even less. It, there's nothing going on. It's, it's night. You, you, unless you've got a full moon, uh, you, you don't. Get, they can't see anything. You just go home and you go to bed. And the point is, nobody's out coming home in the middle of the night on the second or, third or the third watch. It's, that's just not what somebody's doing unless they're up to no good. And so Jesus said it's going to be surprising. You're thinking, well, what is he doing out that late? Why, why is he coming back then? He says, you must also be ready, verse 40, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He makes the point clear that, that the day of my return is not going to be obvious. It's not going to be like he's going to show up and say, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought it would be today. Yeah, that, 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 that's what I thought. It's not going to be like that. Uh, later, later, we're told it's like a thief in the night. Uh, it, it comes in uh, uncertain. Nobody plans for a thief, right? Jesus used that example in just a few minutes. Nobody plans. Oh, I think, I think the robbers are coming tonight. We better be ready. doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Uh, they're skilled at just showing up. And so Jesus is, is wanting us to, to see this, this picture to understand that it's going to be unexpected. He talks about the master being gone at, at the wedding feast. Well, they have to understand that's not like Well, the feast starts at 7, and it might get done until 2 and 3 in the morning. No, in the Jewish culture, the wedding feast went for days, sometimes weeks. And the point was, we don't know how long he's going to stay. It might be two or three days. It might be a whole week. And then all of a sudden, he shows back up. Jesus says, the servants who are ready and waiting for the master to return, they will be blessed by him when he comes back. So the point is, we don't know when it's going to be. Anybody who tells you they know when it's going to be is wrong. Because Jesus says they're wrong. Now that being said, Jesus told us other things about his return that help give us some kind of idea about what we should expect to be happening before and when his return is. But again, it's never in such detail that we can even begin to think about, well, it's got to be soon. And to, I'll just be honest here. There's some people that, that would disagree with my understanding of the couple of verses I'm going I'm to share with you. I don't think there's anything that Uh, Is either you're in or out of of Christianity based on this interpretation, but just for the sake of putting my cards on the table, perhaps some of you that don't realize, let me just go through a couple of these things. First of all, uh, Scripture is clear that, well, the one thing that we all agree on is that it's going to be a bodily visible return. Jesus is not coming back in secret. He's not coming back as a spirit. He's he's going to crash through, and every eye will see, and every knee is going to bow. It's not going to be well. I, I, you know what's going on in this other time zone? He's God. Every time zone is going to know that uh, our 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 God is here. But some some more specific things in Matthew twenty four, Jesus says that before he returns, all the nations will hear the gospel. 24:14 This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Now, we've made a big deal about people groups, about nations here, and we've even seen numbers about here are the number of people groups that have absolutely no gospel witness. Even some, they're not even on the radar of missions agencies. Are we able to take that list and just start crossing them off and know it's getting close, it's getting close? No, because even though we have a good understanding of what that word nations means, in other words, it means people groups, we don't know how God determines people groups. Okay, so uh, so we don't know when God is satisfied with the gospel going to the nations. That's why we continue to go until he comes back and puts the missionary endeavor to an end. Secondly, in the same chapter as the first, Jesus says that his return will be after, not before a great time of tribulation. He says immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, when I was growing up, I heard quite the opposite—that you know, God's gonna, God's gonna pull us out before it gets bad. The problem is, for me, when I read the New Testament, I see the exact opposite. I never see a, a, a verse, and if you think you have one, by all means, show it to me. Uh, I'm open to correction, but I never see a verse where Jesus says, "You don't have to go through suffering because you're my people." Just the opposite. He says, I will preserve you through suffering as my people. In fact, the promises and the assurances in Revelation are given to the ones who preserve through difficulty. Who even, who are even faithful to the point of being martyred. Jesus says to you, a crown and a white robe will be given. And so that was Matthew twenty four twenty nine through 31. Uh, well, what I would just say here is what we should understand is that as the gospel increasingly goes powerfully through the world and the church continues to grow, what we should see is an increasing level of hatred and persecution by the unbelieving world. And so it is both a realistic expectation and a hopeful expectation. It is realistic in the sense that what is happening in the news, and the media, and our culture, in this country, how it is being hardened against Christianity, that should be no surprise to us. That should be absolutely no... Should it grieve us? Yes. But it should be no surprise to us that while that's happening at the same time in places like South America and in Africa and in Asia, the gospel is exploding and more and more Christians are coming to faith in Christ. Even in this country, despite the difficulty, despite the resistance, we continue to press on and preach. Now, all those things I'm sharing with you simply to say they line up with what Jesus is saying here is that we're given information about his coming, but nothing come close to telling us this is when it's going to be Date, time, month, year, boom, get ready. Doesn't exist. And so it's unexpected and we are therefore called to always be ready. That's Jesus' point. If you know when it is, you're going to get lazy. You don't know when it is, so don't get lazy. Don't grow slack. Don't fall behind. He's returning at an unexpected time, but notice, secondly, he's returning with a promised reward. He's returning with a promised reward. Whenever I'm going to be gone, sometimes it's at a conference for a couple of days, sometimes it's a convention for a couple of days, sometimes it's a mission trip for several weeks, one of the things I always want to do is tell my kids, remember when I come home, I'm going to bring presents with me. I'm going to bring souvenirs with me. I'm going to bring you back something from where I'm going. Now, why am I doing that? Because I want to give them an incentive to be good while I'm gone. Love your mother, honor your mother, obey your mother, respect your mother, listen to what she says and do it because I'm coming with gifts and I want to be able to give them to you. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 37. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And verse 42, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his servant will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Jesus is saying, remember, when I come back, I am bringing blessing with me. I am bringing rewards and gifts with me. When I come back, come back, it's not like a press conference. So I'm just saying, well, I'm back. I've been away for 2,000 and some years, and and now we're ready to to, to end this thing and bring the fullness of the kingdom. No, no. He is bringing the fullness of the kingdom with him. And part of what that means is blessing and reward for those that have been faithful while he's been away. And, I, I mean, can you believe that imagery? Here is the master. The king himself. And when he comes, he's so, he is so taken, so delighting in the service, the faithful service of his servants, he himself becomes the servant. He puts the towel around his waist. He begins serving the food at the banquet he presents for those that were found faithful. When, not, when I think about not just the incarnate Christ, but now the glorified Christ, using that kind of language about the joy he will have, at finding faithfulness when he returns, that makes me want to be faithful all my days. That, that, That wants me, that motivates me to honor him now with my life, that he might find joy when he comes. But what about those that have not been faithful? Jesus is also clear in these verses that when he returns, he will return with a righteous judgment. He will return with righteous judgment. Jesus says that if a servant says to himself, my master, this is verse 45, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. It's a bit of a gruesome picture that some commentators think that perhaps some masters had actually done as a warning to other servants not to be faithful but whether he's speaking literally or metaphorically the point is the same when Jesus comes it is not just to gather his people to himself to give them their reward it is also to judge the living and the dead it is to give a recompense both to the faithful and to the unfaithful what have you earned while Christ has been away this is what you will get And all of us, whether we are Jesus people or not, will face this judgment because all of us have benefited and are living by the gifts of Christ this very moment. Some of us have God's unique and saving grace and the gifts that come with that, his spirit and his word in our life, the the, the membership, the fellowship of this people. What are we doing with those things? Are we stewarding them well? Are we using them wisely? But even before we came to Christ, we were given life and breath we were given family, we were given talents and abilities and giftings and opportunities. What were we doing with those things? Were we honoring the God who gave them to us, or were we dishonoring the God who gave those things to us? That's what he's coming back to find out. Did we faithlessly waste away our life abusing others, or were we faithful to him? And that question is asked of both believers and unbelievers. Notice that those that do this presume to be servants in the house, but they are cast out to be with the unfaithful when he comes and cuts them to pieces. And so the old black spiritual got it right. When it says you could run for a long time, sooner or later God will cut you down. Go tell that long tongued liar. Go tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell them God's going to cut them down. We don't like that message, but you cannot read the Bible honestly and not see the reality of Jesus coming back to judge the world. And because he is perfect, because he not only experienced humanity and never sinned, but he was fully divine, he is God in the flesh, it will be a just and righteous judgment. No one will be able to say, but God, that's not fair in the light of his glory and his holiness, it will absolutely be fair. What's not fair is that we're not judged now, but we're given time to repent and turn away from our sins to be forgiven by the living God. There is a reality of personal judgment, even though culture doesn't want it. It was interesting, just this week I was reading a story about how the movie Field of Dreams that so many baseball lovers think is an homage to baseball really was not driven by any love for baseball. Kevin Costner, whose idea was for that film, in addition to starring it, said that it was born out of his personal need, and what he thought was cultural's, or culture's need for something beyond this life. In an interview with Time Magazine, he said he made the film because he thought the, cynical's 80s, the cynical 80s needed some of the 60s idealism. Here's what he said, quote, We live in a cynical time. We are jaded. A lot of our heroes have turned out to have clay feet. I don't believe in astrology, crystals, reincarnation, heaven, or hell, but it's a primal emotion to want to make the bad good and to help things work out in the end. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, you know, we need a judge who's going to bring right from wrong, who's going to make it all turn out right in the end, but I don't want no personal judge. I don't believe in heaven or hell or any of that kind of. I I don't believe. I don't. I don't want to believe in the fact that I'm going to have to be accountable for all my days before someone is going to look me in the eye and say, "How did you live your life?" And so, therefore, he creates this fantasy reality where things all just kind of work out in the end. But Jesus will return at an unexpected time with a promised reward and with a righteous judgment. So, how do we live now? How do we live while we await His? Return. Well, Jesus tells us as He describes the servant's persevering service. The servant's persevering service. This is a clear picture we're given given in this passage. And it's mainly this. Watching for the Lord's return doesn't mean gazing at the clouds, wondering if today is the day. Being watchful means watching our lives and asking if they are being lived in line with Christ's commands. Specifically, He says it means that we should serve with readiness, that we should serve with readiness. Jesus begins very clearly by saying, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. I think probably everybody in this room has seen some movie that depicts Jesus or the time in which he lived. And the one thing that they always get right is, everybody's wearing robes, right? They all look like Jedi Masters. Uh, and and you're, just, you're just thinking, what's the deal with the robes, right? I mean, today we don't walk around in robes. People look silly walking around in robes. But back then, it was great. Number one, they were modest. Everything that needed to be covered was covered. They were light and comfortable in the, in the desert kind of climate in which they lived. But they were difficult for doing certain things. They were terrible for fighting. They were terrible for running, So, so some of you perhaps growing up with older translations, although now it's even part of popular cultural speak, although most people have no idea where it comes from. You may have heard the phrase gird up your loins. that's from the Bible, it's a biblical command. In fact, it's right here, stay dressed for action, what Jesus is talking about. What they would do, they would take the, the bottom parts of their robes and they would pull them up in between their legs, tuck them down tight under their belt, freeing themselves up to either run or do work or all kinds of other things like go into battle. And so Jesus is putting this imagery here and he's saying, stay dressed for action. In other words, gird up your loins, take that robe, tie it up, get ready to do some work. It's, it's not time to kick back in the lazy boy and ask for more Diet Coke and anything else you might want to drink. It's, it's, it's no, we're ready for action. We're ready to go. We're ready to, to, to get in the game here. He also says that keep your lamps burning. Earlier we talked about how in Jesus' day people weren't just running around at night because they didn't flip a switch to get electricity. If you want it light, you had to burn something to get it. And specifically, if you're burning an oil lamp, you've got to do two things. Number one, you've got to keep putting oil in it. You just didn't like set it to go and then, and then just fall asleep because you know it's going gonna, it's gonna to burn all night. It didn't work that way. You've got to keep adding oil to it. And if you go for days and days and days, you've got to trim the end of the wick off. Otherwise, you're going to get a very dull and dirty light, not one that's bright or all that helpful. And so Jesus is saying the faithful servant is the one who's not only dressed for action. They keep the lamps burning. The oil is constantly topped off. The wick is constantly trimmed. So that way there's always massive effusion of helpful brightness that keeps the servants ready and alert and prepared for the return of the master. Again, as I think about this, I'm reminded the morning we left the Philippines, Doug and I were in the van with all the other... Uh, people that we had worked with, and we were heading towards the the airport about 3:30 in the morning. And as we were leaving, what was uh, a very informal gated community, uh, we had this little speed bump. And as we slowed down to pass the guardhouse, what we saw was the guard asleep. And the thing is, nobody had to say anything. I mean, no one had to make a comment. I'd no say, you know, he probably should be awake. We didn't have to say that. Everybody just went, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh I mean, we all said at the same time, we all saw it. And it wasn't kind of like, you know, this number where the guy's like trying hard. It was this. I mean, he was, he was out. I mean, there were, I mean, you know, because I, 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 I thought about saying, hey, honk the horn. But, you know, uh, then you wake up other people, it wouldn't be very nice, you know. Uh, but that's the kind of thoughts I have at 3.30 in the morning. So um, it was obvious that he was lax on the job. And Jesus is saying, you know, that, that's not what we're about. That's not what what you should be about as my disciples. This is not a party cruise. It is time for work. Stay ready. Be dressed for action. Be prepared to come and go and do whatever is needed for the sake of my kingdom. So Pastor Legan Duncan says that Jesus, what he is calling us here to is an attitude that pervades the way that you approach life, that you're always ready to be serving the purposes of Jesus in this world. So with that in mind, we have to look at ourselves. We have to ask the question, are we ready? Both we as a church and we as individuals, are we ready? Does this characterize our life? Are we dozing off? as it were, in the midst of life and ministry, or should Christ come at this very moment, will he find us ready and awake and alert and faithful in serving him? Jesus says his disciples need to be serving with readiness. At the same time, we also need to be steadfast in our responsibilities. We need to be steadfast in responsibilities. Did you notice that Peter's question, when we read through the text the first time, Jesus is laying out the urgency of life required because of the nature of his return. And Peter stops him and says, oh, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? You can imagine that student in the middle of a lecture at some point where the professor just is like, they're, they're pouring their guts out with this passionate plea. And, and some person in the back raises their hand and says, is this going to be on the test? Should I be taking notes? Is this important? And you're just thinking, ugh. You know, I could that that's kind of what, what Peter's doing here. At the same time, there is a sense of of which Peter's question is legitimate because though imperfect, he understands, nevertheless, there is something unique about his role. He's not just one of the seventy or ninety or hundred and twenty disciples that are with Jesus at this time. He is part of the twelve apostles that have uniquely been set aside to assist Jesus in his ministry and to one day carry it on. And the question he's asking is legitimate in this sense, are, are you directing all of this specifically to us as, as the apostles, as the leaders of, of your kingdom, or to every disciple that's a part of your kingdom? And the answer that follows is Jesus basically saying it's both. It's for the apostles and the disciples. Or in our current context, it's both for the ministers and the members. Not because ministers are on the same level as apostles, but because their ministry is based on the pattern of apostolic ministry. So Jesus begins by saying that ministers are given a greater responsibility. Ministers are given a greater responsibility. Look look again at verse 42. Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Peter says, is this for for, for us or for everybody? And Jesus says, do you want to know what the wise manager looks like? Do you want to know what your ministry should look like? It's making sure that the servants are well fed at the right time. Steadfast faithfulness for the leaders of God's people means feeding the sheep what they need, when they need it, and how they need it. And so it's very similar to what Jesus is going to tell Peter right before he ascends at the end of John's gospel. You remember when, when Jesus was betrayed, all the disciples fled. Jesus is arrested. They're, they're taking him to be crucified. And, and people are asking Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? Oh, no, no, not me. Not me. He denies them. He he denies him, and then then afterwards he feels really guilty about that. And and he sees Jesus again, and Jesus is seeking to reconcile with him, to give him a chance to repent, and he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, of course I love you. He says, if you love me, then you will feed my sheep. You will feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then feed with spiritual nourishment my sheep people. I'm going away and I'm leaving my flock under your care, under the care of the apostles and eventually local church pastors. Here is my word. Here is my spirit. Take care of my flock. Don't beat them. Don't mistreat them. Don't manipulate them. Don't get rich off them. Care for them. Feed them. That's what it looks like for pastors to be faithful in their calling. That's what it looks like for them to be steadfast in the responsibilities that they've been given. And I have to say that, quite honestly, once a month when Joe and Richard and I sit down for our elders meeting um, and we begin discussing individuals, we begin praying for you, that the reality of that weight begins to, to sit on me. Uh, of this reality of what hebrews 13 says that that pastors have been given the responsibility of watching over the souls of christ's people that one day we will have to give an account for them so people say wouldn't it be nice to have a church of a thousand i say well maybe (laughs) I, i don't know because that means a thousand souls that i have to give an account for before christ a thousand people that he is entrusting to my care. I think I'm happy with about the, the 50 or 60 that I have now. Obviously, on one level, I, I want the church to grow. I want the gospel to go forward. But, but th- there is a weightiness there in that, in that care and that responsibility that Christ is already here highlighting for Peter, the apostles, and for all who would stand in their wake as ministers of the gospel. At the same time, Jesus has a broader application in mind as well. This, this call to readiness and responsibility is something that all his disciples should take to heart because members are also given a certain responsibility as well. Members are also given a certain responsibility as well. At the end of the passage, Jesus says, Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, some of you have heard something that sounds very similar to that all your life, and you never knew where it came from. Uh, so, so, some of you uh, thought that was just what, you know, Uncle Ben came up with. But what you realize is that, no, this is, this is actually a true thing. It's something important and right and good because it comes from Christ himself. It is a res- principle of responsibility, that for those of us that have been entrusted with much things, much resources, much responsibility, so also there is a greater accountability for it as well. And what he's saying is that on one level, every believer has been entrusted with something. You, you you've been giving, you've been given some privilege of ministry, some privilege of service, some some gifting, and all. How are you going to use it? Doesn't mean you use all the all the talents and abilities you have all the time in the same ways. Right now, a lot of many of my kids are into a drawing phase. They're like, draw this, draw that. And I have, a, I have a small, I would say maybe better than average ability, particularly when it comes to drawing superheroes for whatever reason. I can't imagine why, but um, uh, go back and find Johnny at ages 8 to 12, and that might give you some example but or some reason why. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean that I get to use that all the time every day in the context of pastoring. I, I don't. Sometimes I give a children's talk. When I taught uh, children's Sunday school for a year here, then the drawing came out a lot on the whiteboard. But... I don't get to use that time all the time, but, but he's given me the ability to, to speak, to teach, and and, and and lots of other things. And I'm going to be accountable for all those things before God, but so are you. So, so are you as individual, little, lowercase, we call that way, ministers of the gospel. Everyone, every believer has the same ministry responsibility of preaching Christ. And are you using that well. Furthermore, think about the context in which the command is given to apostles about caring for the flock. Likewise, you as members, I can never say mere members because the Bible doesn't use that, but as members, this glorious thing, members of the body of Christ, you are given specific responsibility to care for those around you. To care for other christians that that is the the context here and and what paul is painstakingly clear and practical about in all of his letters it's not just one shepherd caring for the flock it is also the sheep looking out for one another It's not enough just to feed yourselves, but we need to be looking to make sure that others sitting around you are being taken care of and fed. So we don't act like the bad servant of verse 45 who hogs all the food and the wine and gets himself tanked. No, we're looking out for each other, making sure that we all have what we need. Very often when we think about even something like giving benevolence, we're thinking about, oh, that's for needing people outside of the church. And certainly there is a that there is a command to do that. But, you know, the the weightier command and example in the New Testament is to care for the people of God first. So, for example, in in Acts 2 through 4, it's the church that holds all things in common. It's church members who are assisted when they're poor. That's where the priority lies because there is a priority of relationship when it comes to mutual faith in Christ. Paul rallies the churches to give a special offering. What? For, For who? For the needs of suffering Christians in Jerusalem. The whole place is ravaged with famine. But he's concerned that believers are cared for. In 1 Timothy 5, he says that if anyone uh, chooses not to, they have the resources, but they choose not to provide for the needs of their own family, he says, especially members of the household of, of God, in other words, church members, he says that betrays the gospel, and you are worse than an unbeliever in the testimony of your life. So he says in 1 Timothy 5.8, now since I've been here, I have known some of you the whole ten and a half years or whatever it is. And you've just been giving and giving and giving and pouring out your life for the members of this church. And that's encouraging. And I see the effects of that throughout the rest of the congregation. Others of you have, are, are here more recently and you've just jumped in and and, and grabbed on to the, the same vision of, of loving and serving one another. But there are others and that's, that's not where you're at right now. And collectively as a church, we want to make sure that we are clear at the very least on what this responsibility is that Jesus himself is giving to us, that that Paul picks up on and explains the practicality of us, that, that we are to be serving and caring for the needs of one another, not just in terms of, of teaching, but in a whole person kind of ministry. And so, you know, one of the things that we even have right now that, that we want to make sure that, that we're emphasizing is that, you know, there, there's... There's a couple different ways churches can grow, and, and right now we're doing it biologically. We, we have more kids in the nursery, we have more babies, even more, and we are thankful for that. But what that also means now, the time is is clear and now and evident that some of us need to step up and be working in the nursery. And I, I know that in most churches we don't want to do that. Well, I want to hear the sermon. Well, so does the mom. And I guarantee you, if five kids were in here screaming, you would be upset about it. You could say, "Well, no, we've even, no. I've seen your faces. I, I know you would be upset about it." So here's what we say: We say, "All hands on deck." We care for these mothers, we care for these fathers, we care for these families, and we take turns working in the nursery, providing love and care for the children of our members. Knowing also that there will be visitors that come into our midst, so we want to provide for them as well. It's a practical demonstration of our love and care for one another. that We are all sheep of the same, same flock with the same shepherd called to love one another as the Father and the Son love one another. Well, what better practical demonstration could there be than that kind of ministry? Some of you know the name of George Whitfield. For those of you that don't know, I'll simply say that he was a great evangelist in Britain and in America uh, just before the American Revolution. God used him alongside another preacher named John Wesley to bring about an amazing revival that historians call the Great Awakening. It took place in the 30 years right around 1740 to 1770. Under his preaching, tens of thousands of people were brought to saving faith in Christ. He preached something like twice a day, not not twice a week, twice a day, every day for, for almost all those 30 years. He was an amazing servant of God. Today, he's all but revered as a saint. But when he was alive, many people didn't like him because he was so popular. Some in the press accused him of witchcraft, of hypnotizing the crowds. Some pastors were jealous because such people, such crowds were not coming to their churches. Whitfield would just go into town and go out into a field. And literally thousands would flock to hear this man of God preach. One town in the Moorfields of London saw 60 people at one time come to hear him declare the gospel of Christ. Again, for various reasons, the press and even some pulpits vilified him mercilessly. Tracks were written against him. Newspaper articles were published condemning him. When you go back and and you read the things, it's just unbelievable the things that were said about him. And yet... Though you'd expect him to be angry and bitter about these things, given how God was using him, it was the exact opposite. When you read his personal journals, which he never imagined would be published, he would more or less say, well, I got another attack. There was another book circulated calling me this or that, saying I had five wives, saying I was an illegitimate child, saying this or that. And at the very end, he would say, oh, well, in just a few moments, we'll all be standing before the great throne of God. People would say, why don't you defend yourself? Why don't you tell the truth about yourself? And he would say, all I want on my gravestone is this. Here lies GW. The great day will reveal what sort of man he really was. Think about that. Whitfield drew comfort and humility and strength from the idea that any second, any minute, any moment, we'd all be standing before the throne of God because Christ had returned. He never had to get back at someone to be frustrated because his judge was coming. The judge was coming for him. Everybody would stand and he would be vindicated when he came. He knew the Savior was coming. So he was driven to see that sinful men and women and children who otherwise would be condemned to hell would hear the gospel of grace and find forgiveness by grace alone through faith alone. He knew his king was coming, so he preached about the king, not himself. He didn't worry about his own reputation. It was simply the glory of Christ that he longed to see lifted up. Today, Jesus is coming whether you're ready or not. What do you do if you're not ready? The beauty of Christ is that he's always ready and willing to receive sinners to himself. Maybe you're already a disciple of Christ, you're a Christian, and you've been playing in the mud of sin rather than planting the seed of the gospel. Repent. Call out to Christ and he will give you the grace that you need to stay dressed for action and to keep your lamps burning for him. He will give you the grace that you need to look on your fellow servants with compassion and see that their needs are met. Maybe you're not a disciple, maybe maybe you're not a Christian, maybe After this sermon, your only expectation is experiencing the the cutting down that will come with the judgment of Christ's righteous ruling. Then repent, turn away from your sin, call out to Christ and he will bring you into the flock of his people like a tender shepherd. He will provide for your every spiritual need, ensuring that you have life and forgiveness with God. He will even set you amidst others He will help teach you and train you to be servants the kind of servant that will be found faithful at Christ's return. This morning, regardless of of where we're at, let us think long and hard about the reality of Christ's return. By the grace that he gives us, let us strive to be like servants who are always waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes. Father, we, we do pray that that would be true of our lives, that we would be always at the ready, prepared, serving. God, I'm reminded of a Spurgeon who said every moment he he would ask himself, would Jesus be happy if he came back now and found me doing what I'm doing? Father, we pray that, that those kinds of thoughts would be on our mind, both because of the the imminency and unexpectedness of your son's return but also that the realization that that he is coming to bring either reward or judgment for those who are faithful servants God he's not calling us to perfection for he himself along with his disciples have said that perfection is impossible in this life that is what we look for in the life to come nevertheless he did call for faithfulness and part of that faithfulness is acknowledging that we're not perfect, turning to you, repenting of our sins, and calling out for forgiveness and the grace that we need to, to, to get back doing what we should be doing. So, Father, whether that is where we're at, whether calling out to you in faith for the first time for salvation is where we're at, God, I pray that you would, you would move in our hearts and lead us to respond in the way that we need to respond this morning. And we would do so for the sake of Christ and light of his return.